Hello and welcome to another edition of South Africa's Best Listening, podcast from the edge with me, Peter Bruce. We're everywhere on the Financial Mail, Apple and Spotify. I'm not going to mess around babbling this morning because we have an extremely busy guest and there's a lot to talk about. The country is in crisis. The government hides the facts. A million rounds of ammunition have been stolen. Dark messages of treachery, murder and mayhem do the rounds. And the state has managed to arrest, well, almost no one behind the eruption of violence in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng two weeks ago. No one of any real significance. So what better time to talk to John Steenhazen, leader of the Democratic Alliance, the biggest opposition party. I don't know about you, but I think I've noticed a shift in his demeanor. Where he was once a cocky, point-scoring parliamentary chief whip, he seems these days to be a much more careful, studied, perhaps even thoughtful figure now. I hope that's a good thing. John, welcome to the show. And thank you for coming on. I don't know whether I got my description of you right. You can. You're welcome to uh, uh, enlighten me. Well, th- thanks, Peter. It's great to great to be with you. And uh, certainly, um, you know, I think that it takes leaders some time to find their their voice. Uh, I don't think it's something that happens the moment you get the mantle. And um, you know, it's sort of it's been a learning curve for me as well. And um, I think that I'm starting to find the voice, and and hopefully that voice uh, is going to be a force for good in in South Africa. Yeah, look, I mean, there's there's a chief there's a chief whip voice and there's a leader voice. I'm sure you're absolutely right. But you know, just look at the state of South Africa. It's how has it changed the way you think about our future and perhaps also the future of the DA? Well, Peter, I mean, I think I've always been one of those uh, you know real optimists about South Africa. I mean, you have to be optimistic if you if you're in the opposition and certainly in the game of politics in South Africa. But certainly the events of the last fortnight have really shaken a lot of my uh, fundamental, you know, opt- fundamental optimism. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm starting to feel uh, very, very concerned about the current trajectory that we're on and about, you know, what the future lies. And uh, I think that there's a lot of time that's been wasted that could have been better spent on, on getting us onto a new trajectory. But I remain convinced if we continue on the current trajectory that South Africa is heading towards failed state country. Uh, and and it worries me. It worries me about the future, not only for the country, but also for my own family. I've got three young girls and I've got a family here in, in South Africa. And like most South Africans, I, I worry about what their future is uh, if this current uh, trajectory continues. Uh, and that's why I believe now more than ever before, the country needs a party like the DA at the rational center of South African politics to be able to become a partner for uh, you know the, the reform agenda in South Africa. And you know, that's where I absolutely believe the DA has to play. Uh, it's got to be the party of ideas. It's got to be a solid ally at the center um, for the reformers across the spectrum who may be wearing different T-shirts now, but who share the fundamental core values that are going to be required to to shape and and reform a new majority in South Africa to get us off this terrible trajectory and one to uh, one of growth prosperity and and opportunity just talk about the rational center and being a partner you you you're talking i'm sure about forms of future coalition governments or arrangements be they coalitions or not but what's the rational part what rationally position can we all arrive at where somehow we can all, you know, agree this is okay? Well, Peter, I think that there's four key values that around which a a realignment in South Africa can take place. And these are not necessarily values that are unique to the DA. As I said, I think there are people 
across the political spectrum in different T-shirts that, that share these values. And I think that's what's going to be required more than ever before is for those South Africans to find each other and to start to work together in some meaningful way to beat off the challenge of the, of the radical left. While most other countries around the world are running as far away as they can from, from radical socialism, even those countries that were the poster boys for, uh, for radical socialism, Venezuela, uh, Zimbabwe, Cuba. So they're running as far away as they can from the, from the, the radical policies that have caused such misery and suffering for them and their populations. And yet in South Africa, we're doing precisely the opposite. We're marching towards a command economy with national plans. We're marching towards nationalization, expropriation without compensation, crowding out of the private sector. So all of those are, are massive uh, warning lights that are going off. And if the rational center that doesn't subscribe to the principles of non-racialism, respect for the rule of law and the constitution, a social market economy, and building a capable state, uh, if we cannot come together around those things, then I really do despair for the future. I, I think that now is the time for South African uh, leadership and leaders to be looking at the 10 to 15 things that we can agree on that need to be done over the next decade in South Africa to get us off this low growth, high debt, high unemployment trajectory and onto uh, one of growth, uh, opportunity, prosperity and employment uh, for the country. If we don't do that, I really feel, as we saw in the uh, events in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng of the last fortnight, that anarchy and, and anger will spill over if those people do not start tasting some fruits of progress uh, and opportunity in the country. John, how do those conversations even begin to happen? I mean, if, the, if people in the rational center are to find themselves, and you're talking about them as if they exist also outside of your party, um, uh, how, do you, how do you find each other and how do you begin to talk to each other? I mean, where's the, where's the political space in South Africa to do that? Well, I think it exists, Peter, and I think we've had the green shoots of that already. Uh, if one looks at the vote in Parliament, for instance, on the inquiry into the public protector's fitness to hold office, uh, it there you had a very good example, I think, of the rational DA providing votes for with the rational ANC, as well as other smaller parties, to uh, beat and form a majority uh, over the EFF, the radical economic transformation forces in the ANC and others who, who are opposed to that. So I think that the green shoots are there. I think that the formalization has to start happening. And I think that uh, that it, it should it should really be happening in a far more meaningful way uh, because it's very, very clear that the ANC's hold on, stranglehold on electoral politics is easing. Uh, they've been in decline every election since 1994, bar from a slight uh, interregnum there with under Mr. Mbeki. I think it was in 1999. Uh, th their grip on power is is slipping. The centre is not holding within that party, and I think now would be an opportune time for the reformers in that party to be looking outward for allies that they could align with to be able to assist them to get their agenda through. But it's very clear to me that, yes, Peter? No, so just, I'm just trying to be realistic about it. So put yourself in President Cyril Ramaphosa's shoes for a minute. What, what does he do? I mean, he's, he gives the impression, if you look at the way he behaves, is that he can't move, um, that somehow there's a sort of political treacle around him that prevents him doing anything quickly. 
it might be his personality, but it might also be circumstances we don't we don't really know. So, what what is what does he what does he do now? To can he, first of all is his party irrevocably split now? Is this evidence of a real split in the ANC? Because clearly, what that was um, two weeks ago was that was an intra ANC war being um, played out on the streets of of, of those two uh, provinces. But how does he, how do you and Cyril Ramaphosa find himself without him being ejected and without you also um, running into trouble with some of your constituents? Mm. Well, I think that a lot of people agree that South Africa is in a difficult place. And I think a lot of people agree that Ramaphosa has lost the initiative now in terms of, of getting his reforms through uh, in any meaningful way. Now, he can talk about the reform agenda as much as he wants until it is rammed through Parliament in the form of legislation, in the form of amendments to legislation, in the form of new regulations uh, and, and new uh, approaches to doing things, uh, he's not going to be able to succeed in that reform agenda because his own party remains the biggest impediment for the reform agenda to, to, be, uh, to be implemented. I think if the president had, uh, had been a lot bolder at the beginning of his term, I think we wouldn't be sitting with the situation, but it is what it is. And you know, I'm more committed to ensuring that South Africa works and ensuring that we can get a country with a viable future that, that lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity than I am necessarily about you know, political point scoring. And I've said to the president on many occasions, both privately and in other meetings, we are here to support you when you do the right thing. You bring your reform agenda to parliament. We'll help you to pass it, just as we work together on the Public Protector uh, Initiative. And I think that the president's going to need that because he must by now be realizing that his legacy, if he continues on the current trajectory, is going to be one of failure and it will ultimately result in, in his ejection anyway. So I think the time has come for the president to risk and, and, and dare and dare greatly to be able to start to get that reform agenda before the table and draw a line in the sand saying this, these are the reforms that are needed to get our economy working and our people back to work. And I'm sorry if you don't like them in the radical economic transformation camp, but this is what needs to be done now. This is what South Africa needs now if we're going to remain a viable democracy and that we're going to be able to start to stitch together um, some of the, of the economic reforms that are going to be required. And I think that we've seen it in many occasions in parliaments around the world, and I'll be the first to admit perhaps the systems aren't the same, where you've had prime ministers who've re been able to survive backbench rebellions by using you know, an opposition block that, that is able to help you get a, a particular initiative or legislation through. Um, so I agree it's difficult, Peter, and, and if it was easy, it would have been done a long time ago, and I think we'd be well on the way towards, uh, I think, finding a far more successful future. Uh, but it's because it's hard. And, and I think that, as I've said, I'm prepared to put aside some of the ideologies of my own party and you know, around the, the 10 to 15 things that I think that we can do to fix South Africa over the next decade. And I think that it's time for people who care about the future of the country to come together around those, uh, those things and ideas. And if I have a new pivot around which this re, um, form can happen and the realignment can happen and we can build a new majority. I think South Africans are crying out for leadership. I think that the last uh, fortnight has really shaken many South Africans, even the great optimists like myself, 
to the core, having witnessed firsthand what happened on the ground there. It's shaken me to the core. And I think that it's it's now a clarion call for real change. And I think that, you know, as Winston Churchill famously said, don't waste a good crisis. The president must not waste this crisis now to be able to strike out boldly in a new direction. So, so John, I mean, what South Africans want to know is what's going to happen now. I mean, you know, politically you can say, well, you know, you can sort of look at the alignment of forces, um, look at what might be marginally possible on the edges of each of those forces your one of your predecessors, Helen Zilla, had, I'm sure she's drawn it for you too, you know, her triangle where um, a little bit goes off to the EFF and a little bit of the ANC, a little bit goes off to the DA. That's not happening in a way, really. It's it's not, you know, the the EFF basically is is almost a wing of the ANC. The DA seems to have very little ability to get the ANC to listen to it. I mean, I understand about the, the uh, approach to the, public protector in parliament, but it's a very lonely example uh, of you all working together. Uh, well, Peter, I mean, first of all, yeah, I've seen the diagram and I agree completely with the analysis of that diagram. And it also, it speaks to creating that that space in the centre. Uh, I agree with the analysis that the EFF is essentially a wing of the ANC. I think it's a youth wing in exile. Uh, and it's very, very clear that Mr. Malema has great ambitions and designs of of extending his influence within the ANC because he wants to be the president of the republic, and he made no bones about that uh, over the course of this of the weekend. Um, I think there have been other issues uh, where where it has been. I think that the meeting that I had with the president in the midst of the crisis was probably the most constructive meeting I've had with him since uh, I became the leader of the opposition. Uh, I thought that he was willing to listen. I put on the table a nine point plan. Uh, every single one of those nine points was taken up and was implemented. And I think it, it goes some way to showing that, that there is a way to work together. And I said very clearly at the beginning of that meeting, I'm very cross at the failings of government, but now's not the time. We need to find a way out of the situation and to restore law and order and calm. And these are my the nine points that I think were important. And I, I genuinely, genuinely listen. This was a meeting held, I think, on the on the Monday. It was, it was, it was a virtual meeting, I presume. That was correct. Um, it was a virtual meeting. Because you very quickly ended up, and I think you were the first leader I saw in KwaZulu itself, in the rubble um, uh, on the same day, later that day. I don't know how much you can tell us about the meeting or your nine points, but what was the atmosphere of that meeting? A little bit, if you could help us with, you know, you were all in there, presumably Julius Malema would have been in there, you would have been there, the Freedom Front Plus would have been there. What is it like? If it was constructive, what does construction what does constructive feel like? Well, Julius Malema wasn't there. You may recall they chose to boycott the meeting, which I think was quite silly in the instance. I mean, you want to be in the room uh, when things happen, and excluding yourself from the room is always a dangerous political strategy. And I think in this instance, it's backfired on the EFF. Um, they said it would have been a waste of time. As I've said, I think it was the most constructive meeting I've had with the president. But the thing that struck me the most of that meeting, Peter, was that it seemed to me very, very clear that the president had no understanding about what the situation was really like on the ground and had been very poorly served by whoever was responsible for giving him intelligence and security briefings. And I think that is why being able to speak to him from the epicenter in KwaZulu-Natal uh, was was helpful to him, being able to say, well, this is these are the nine things that need to happen between now and the end of the week. Otherwise, you're not going to get the situation under control and things are going to get a hangover a lot worse uh, and, and 
you know they will spread to other other parts of the of the province uh, of the country through through the other provinces. Um, and as I said, I, the president took notes, and I then sent my points to his uh, private secretary later on that day. And as I've said, you know, I'm not taking credit for it, and I'm not trying to, you know, overplay my hand in this. Uh, but I was just very pleased that that every one of those was given consideration. And I think that what were the nine points? Well, the first one was to was to increase the deployment to get the boots on the ground as quickly as possible into KwaZulu Natal. Uh, that the I said to him that the the security service had completely lost the initiative and 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 having been in Phoenix and and in Cottonlands and Verulam, it was very clear they still did not have the initiative. Um, and, and, and when you lose the initiative as the law and order force, uh, that's when the vacuums created. The second thing was to ensure that the N three and N two were open to be able to get supplies in there. And the president I urged him to use military hardware, helicopters, trucks. Etc. And, and troops to to keep those arterial routes open because there was a pending food crisis uh, in and medicines crisis. Thirdly, was to uh, immediately establish a new uh, joint operational command centre because the thing that was very obvious to me on the ground was that the Metro Police and the Army and the SAPS were not coordinating or talking to each other in any significant way. So you had each branch running off like chickens without the heads on doing their own thing. And there needs to be private, uh, it needs to be a, a formal coordination. And I suggest to the president as well that he brings in private security companies, neighborhood watches into that jocks so that you know they can also be used to, to assist. Then to ensure that those farms in the neighboring area that are being burnt that provide milk, um, uh, produce, etc., be protected because they would be integral in the coming days. Uh, making sure then as well that the intelligence services got on top of the WhatsApp groups and Facebook groups that were, were openly conducting their activities on, on social media, uh, sending messages about where the soft points are, where the police had just moved on from, uh, and very clear that the, the looters were far more coordinated than the security services uh, in terms of that, uh, and then making sure that, which bizarrely, which I found out while I was on the ground, is that the shotgun use of shotguns and crowd control and rubber bullets had been removed from station level and was only allocated to the public order policing unit, which was then horribly overstretched. So I said to the president that one of the things that you could do immediately is to issue shotgun and, and riot control equipment to ordinary state at station levels so that they can help you know, maintain things. What you want to do is use non-lethal force as far as possible to do it. Uh, and I was amazed that that shotguns uh, two years ago were withdrawn from from ordinary station use, which doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, and then there was uh, a few a few other rats and mice um, issues around um, command structures and the like. Uh, and, and and by and large, every one of those was was implemented. And you know, I think that it's it's precisely that type of coming together. Uh, that we need to see far more of in South Africa. And it can only really be led from the president, um, Peter, and that is really the truth. And I think that he should reach out more to natural parties that are you know, allies of his growth agenda. And he has no better ally in his growth agenda than and reform agenda than the Democratic Alliance. What would your advice to the rest of us, you know, as in get out or, or, or stay indoors, if he gets it... Um, Wrong. No. Um, I mean, do you believe that, because he, he equivocated a little bit, didn't he? He initially said that there'd been an ethnic mobilization uh, behind this, and then he retracted that. Um, 
But then you have this sort of situation in Phoenix now, which looks incredibly dangerous, um, uh, or clearly was dangerous during those during those uh, days of unrest. How do you how do you how do you calm that down? What do you do? What do you have, you know? What do you go in? I mean, the you know you've got an Indian side and an African side in. In Phoenix, how do you keep them apart or how do you get them to talk to each other and trust each other? Peter, I think it's been the situation in Phoenix, uh, with greatest respect to, to those who've analyzed it, has been completely overblown. And as I say, it's another issue about being on the ground that made a difference. There was no massacre in Phoenix. There was lawlessness that broke out on both behalf of residents and on looters. And having been in that community and seeing that rank fear in people's lives as their homes, their businesses... Uh, were being burnt, being raided, etc. Uh, into that vacuum of lawlessness stepped, I believe, some people who took the law into their own hands on both sides, on both the looting side and on the other side. Uh, I don't think there was a determined massacre there. I think what you had was was lawlessness and breaking down. And that's why both the far right and the radical left disagree on many, many things. But they certainly agree on the state's you know, role in maintaining law and order. Uh, and when the state doesn't maintain law and order, uh, that type yeah. of vacuum, uh, you know, it, it will always be created. And I think that yeah. it's being used as a mask to cover up the real problem there. And that is the fact that the security services were nowhere to be seen in Phoenix. I, I spent most of the morning there and it was horrific. There were bodies on the side of the road. But I also, you know, sat with families whose houses had been completely ransacked. Uh, their elderly were abused. Um, you know, uh, there were people who were threatened with sexual assault, it was, it, was a, it was an environment of fear. And that fear was created because of the lawlessness. Why in all of this is Parliament not discussing it? Well, that's a very good question because this has been discussed in the House of Commons. It's been discussed in other parliaments around the world. Our parliament remains closed. And I, I think it is completely outrageous that the National Forum for Public Debate and the National Forum for Executive Oversight uh, has a speaker that obstinately refuses to recall Parliament. I cannot think... Surely she's under instruction. Well, I imagine she is, and I imagine the reason she's under instruction is that they want to get their story straight on the security cluster before they come back to Parliament. But she should be putting the interests of the country first. It's a hugely symbolic thing to recall Parliament, and I think that this, the events of the last fortnight have been so seismic that I couldn't imagine any other events that you would recall Parliament for. I mean, other democracies, they recall Parliament when there are floods, uh, you know, when there's any form of disaster. And it really amazes me now that, you know, we've got a head-in-the-sand approach, when what we should have is every head around the table looking for solutions. And Parliament is a perfect arena for that to take place. And yet, you know, we remain closed and shut. If, if Parliament, were, if Parliament were recalled, uh, John, would you would you guys have a raft of proposals to make? Yes, absolutely. We we we're working on on a document uh, which will be a learning uh, from this, but also it'll set out some of the key reforms that need to be take place in a variety of portfolios. So I've tasked my shadow cabinet with looking at the crisis and of the last fortnight uh, from their parliamentary portfolio perspective and coming up with a list of what can be done now to make sure it never happens again. And some of the bigger reforms are going to be around the security cluster. And you know you you, you know me from my time as chief whip, and people are terribly bored about it, yeah. but I've been banging on about the security cluster and the lack of oversight of the intelligence services in South Africa for, for, for four years. No, well, it's been, yeah. it's been brutal. 
been brutally, brutally um, mm. Uh, mm. exposed, has been absolutely it's... hopeless. And I think that the relationship between the chief of police or the commissioner of police and the minister uh, deserves a, mm. a lot more um, attention. But once again, you know, the minister can't discipline the chief of police. Only the president can. Um, let's just move a little bit on from the, the carnage to to uh, electoral politics. So former Deputy Chief Justice uh, Dikhang Mosaneke decides to um, recommend that the October 27th local government elections be moved out to next February. Um, you were opposed to that. You wanted the election sooner. But February is not... Not a not a catastrophe, is it? Well, I think that you've got to look at this from two perspectives, Peter, and 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 one is is the implications, the longer term implications, and of course the short term implications. Now, the short term implications is the country is struggling under coronavirus, and I mean we can spend uh, I'm sure ten episodes going into why we're sitting where we are as the least vaccinated, or one of the least vaccinated nations in the world. Um, but the reality is that I think that Mosaneki overstepped his his brief. Uh, in calling for that to be happening. I think that the precedent is terrible. We all knew that this was a turkey shoot right from the beginning. The IEC, the EFF, and the ANC did not want this election to take place this year, all for a variety of different reasons. I mean, the ANC would hate to go into an election in the midst of an economic recession, a pandemic, which they've mishandled, and an unemployment rate sitting at 42%. Uh, this is terrible consequence. And I think they've looked at other nations and seen the COVID politics has had an absolute impact on how people have voted. The EFF, uh, you know, have had been rendered almost totally irrelevant uh, while Parliament's been uh, moved to a virtual platform. So their one-trick pony antics of destroying and breaking, disrupting have not been able to take place. And we also know the ANC is struggling financially. Um, the IEC, you know, I think, were, were, were worried about preparations, etc. So this was a turkey shoot right from the beginning, which is why it's also been set up to be announced at this particular time. And the reality is, and, and let me be very clear, we are opposed to the election being delayed. I think it sets a terrible precedent that in future government in an unfavorable environment can always look back and say, oh, well, remember when we delayed the local government elections, you know, we could do it no. again. And that's when your elections move from every five years to every seven years to every 10 years and then stop happening altogether. Uh, but, you know, what we're not going to do is, is to go to court and, and you know, challenge us in yeah. court because it'll be a Pyrrhic victory precisely because it's been left so late. So even if we were to, to take the decision on review, uh, we'd probably get judgment probably end of September. And what court is going to then say, well, you know, have the election at the end of October. So we'll live with the yeah. February. I think it's a terrible precedent. I think it's the wrong decision to be made. Um, but you know, there it is. Um, we, we've been made party to the EFF, uh, sorry, to the, Con the IEC's application of the Concord, and we will argue our case there. Um, and what we will try and do is look for the backstop, because what you don't want is to have this thing now ad infinitum. So we now have a fourth or fifth wave in February, and we can't have the election again. And it keeps being moved out and moved out and moved out. Uh, there are far too many yeah. towns and cities around the country that need to be liberated from poor government to wait that time. Let's assume a local government election in February 22. Mm -hmm. um, there's an ANC election at the end of, uh, of 22 and a general election in 24. Um, how, you, where, how are you going to approach these? And it, the DA, same as for, for having very accurate political polling, um, what does your polling tell you, not only about yourself, what does it tell you about the ANC at the moment? 
Yeah. Well, look, it's very hard to extrapolate a national figure onto onto a local government election, but the ANC have been polling consistently below 50% for a very, very long time on our tracking poll, um, which is a, you know, a source of some, uh, you know, of some uh, uh, opportunity for us. Um, but obviously, we've got to, you know, we've got to take advantage of that opportunity. And I've been very clear to the party that we've got to go in and sell our own message uh, in in this next election. It's not going to be good enough just to tell everyone how bad the ANC is. We've got to go in and and really sell who we are and what we do, and and the fact that where we govern, we get things done. Now we're not perfect, Peter, and we make a lot of mistakes, and we don't always get it right. But my goodness me, on your you know on the DA's worst day where it's in government. Uh, you know, you, it's very difficult to even compare it with the ANC's best day. And whether it's Auditor General, whether it's any one of those independent reports, it shows that is the case. So what I want to ask, John, is, um, I mean, are you, in terms of your own polling now, comparing to the D, to the ANC, are you doing any better? I mean, you've had a big policy conference. You're a slightly different party that went into the last election um, with a different focus. Yeah, but look, I mean, it's obviously we've recovered quite nice. We had a significant setback in 2019, Peter. It was really very, very bad. And then obviously after the election, you have the hangover, you know, in the polls in as well. And so we've clawed our way back quite yeah. significantly. I'm very comfortable where we are at the moment. I'm not happy. Um, uh, and there's a lot of work still to be done. But I'm comfortable that yeah. we're in a position now in the polls where we'll be able to launch an assault uh, on on the ANC and, and be able to take many, many more local governments. And I think yeah. we will end up in a net positive than where we were at in the 2019 elections, which is important. You are going to get yourself into a position where the ANC has to make coalitions to govern in various uh, metros or or, or towns and cities. Now, is the the idea, because this is my understanding from reading, I think it was Yan Yan Jaber who wrote quite a good book, just before the last election, and he had a long conversation with the former um, uh, f- federal chair of the DA, James Self, where I remember James Self saying we would, we, we would go into coalition with anyone but the ANC, which, would, which, which I read and I think other people read as well, we would consider going into coalition with the EFF. So what I wanted to ask you was what, what lines are in the sand now? I mean, you are going to have to do this by coalition. Who is anything off the table? Um, no, nothing's off the table, Peter, and I think we need to be consistent in that. Um, but I think that what I can say is that we will find it very difficult under any circumstances to go into coalition with the EFF. And I think the one thing that we learned in Johannesburg particularly was that when you go into coalition with a party where there is no fundamental common ground around values and principles, that it ends up costing you. And a lot of the trouble we're having in Linasia in uh, El Dorado Park, Easter, Rafia, et cetera, is around poor decisions that were made where we turned a blind eye under those administrations to one of our core values and principles, the rule of law, protecting people's properties from land invasions. And that's biting us now. So I think it would be very difficult for us to go into any form of coalition with the EFF. There's absolutely no value share there. And so we will look at each case on a case-by-case basis and make a decision, what is in the best interest of that town or city uh, for us in terms of coalition? And if there's no benefit for the town or city or the people of that, of that city or town, um, we will take up our seats on the opposition bench and be a, a, a very, very good opposition. In a national election, would you and other parties consider um, in, in 
terms of getting the ANC below 50% and putting it into a position where it needs help, would you consider, I don't, there's a name for it, I'm sure, where um, sort of, you know, a pact between parties where, you know, you don't, you don't um, politic in each other's sort of backyards, as it were, where you leave certain areas to, I don't know, Encarta or the Freedom Front Plus or uh, the African Christian Democratic Party, and they leave you alone. I mean, just in terms of splitting the votes ahead, you know, in a national election, that's not smart. I mean, if you want, if the idea is to remove the ANC and all of its problems from power, what arrangement do you have to make to to make it easier? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, the thing is that the worst thing that can happen is a splintering of the vote. You know, the opposition vote gets spread amongst a variety of, of other parties. Unfortunately, electoral pacts don't work in our system because of the proportional top-up. So it works very well, for instance, in a, a straight parliamentary election, a Westminster-based system like you have in the UK, where you can vote for um, you know, the Greens. Uh, if you're a Lib Dem, you can vote for the Greens to keep the Tories out. Uh, and that you can decide who's got the best chance. But the, the PR system and the PR top-up means that if you don't compete, you don't get those votes, and it actually ends up costing you in the long run. So it makes it very, very difficult. But I think that, that people need to look at, well, who are the parties that are going to be the strongest bulwark against the, the ANC's slide to radical socialism, and who also would be the best uh, ally for the growth agenda? There's no game in town if we don't bring the ANC below 50%. It's, they will just continue on the current trajectory. There's no need for them to change because they, yeah. will, they will remain in, in power and we'll, we'll continue muddling along until eventually, you know, we've got bailouts and, and, and the failed state. Yeah. We've got to bring the ANC below 50% and splitting the vote across a variety of smaller parties that then makes coalitions very fractious, as we've seen uh, in, in various, yeah. uh, but makes it, makes it almost impossible to govern because you're essentially beholden to a 2% party who then wants to appoint the municipal yeah. manager and get the tenders. So, you know, you've got to be very circumspect about these things. So one last thing, John, I, I need to ask you this, and I know your um, finance spokesman, Jordan Hill-Lewis, um, makes jokes about it, but I do yeah. have a thing with the, with the EFF, with, the, with sorry, not the EFF, with the DA. I think we've all got a thing with the EFF. About economic, <laughs> about economic policy, because, and you mentioned it just now, you know, that we, we, the president um, is, is going to just try and forge ahead with this kind of left-wing um, centralized um, uh, growth policy if he's the, the bigger the hole you know the more the more he digs um, but but I frequently say that the problem with the DA, with the DA is that you also you don't have an answer to that you don't have an economic policy you have values an economic values policy and and all of those things but and I've checked this with the people who did the document the report into the DA after um, after the election, um, and and you you know you the one thing you haven't done is follow the instruction or the recommendation that you that you create an economic policy and put it at the middle of your platform, and you didn't. And I wonder whether you are going to regret that. Mm. Well, come come election time, what's your alternative? Well, because it is. Being, it's all very well to say a social a market economy, but most people don't even know what that is. Yeah. Well, Peter, I think the important thing to say is that I mean, it is a it is a work in progress, and and the work is being done. But the economic policy transcends just one document. I mean, our economic policy is contained in our housing policy. I mean, spatial inequality and bringing people into the into 
work opportunities is no, contained I, in, in our housing policy. It's in our transport policy. Uh, so I think your economic policy transcends just one document and it, it speaks to that. But I also like to see things as getting the principles right. We've got, we don't have a policy problem in South Africa. We've got you know, a plethora of policies that exist in, in drawers at the union buildings. We've got the NDP, the NGP, with IPAP. You've got all these policies that sit there, but you don't have the will to implement. And I think you've got to get the values and principles right. I'm going to interrupt you. What you don't have, and this is what you're missing, in my view, is an overarching message that can grab people by the throat and say, this is the kind of economy that we want to be. You know, what, how, you can't just say something's inclusive. I mean, Cyril Ramaphosa goes on about inclusive economy without ever describing it. But, you know, there is a way, and I've read the housing policy and I've read the uh, public works policy and education, all that, but they do not do this one thing. They do not. Um, well, the one, thing, the one thing I would do is just say simply five words, get government out the way. Uh, I think that you know, that is the economic policy that grabs people by the throat. That's got to be the message that gets out there. I think after the last two weeks, if we ha- can't see that the private sector can do things better than government and you know, in, in, is far more efficient in many aspects, then you know no economic policy is going to is going to save us. We're going to continue with these master plans and you know industry plans and you know, uh, gazelles and all these these fancy things. Yeah. If government doesn't get out the way and break the monopoly, it's going to continue to be a problem. And if I would sum up our policy as that, get government out the way, create the space for entrepreneurship for the private sector across all those industries. John, we're going to talk about that some more. Um, but that's all we have time for. And thank you very much, John Steenhausen, for joining us. Um, and good luck as you search for solutions. I hope listeners enjoyed that as much as I did. I'll be back next week with another stimulating guest and hopefully an equally stimulating conversation. Bye-bye.